Well, hello everyone. As we speak, it's London EdTech Week in the UK. So to celebrate, we're putting out an episode of the EdTech podcast every day this week. You'll be hearing from a mixture of amazing teachers and educators, ministries of education, EdTech companies, sleep specialists, and much, much more recorded all over the world. If you enjoy listening, give us a shout out on Twitter at Podcast EdTech and share the London EdTech Week hashtag, hashtag EdTechWeekLDN. Normal service resumes next week. Enjoy! So I'm here with Sam Rich from eLimu from Kenya. So welcome, Sam. Thank you very much. Sam, can you tell us a little bit about what the last couple of days have been like for you at uh, Global Education Skills World Forum, who you've been chatting to and some of the most memorable parts of, of the last sort of 48 hours? To be honest, I think the most memorable part was there was a great party last night with Rita Ora and we were all singing along to her. And um, yeah, that was fun, thousands of people, but in this really bizarre setting, because here we are in the middle of like Dubai with all these kind of skyscrapers around. And then there's a, there's a teacher's conference and they're giving like the world's best teacher prize out. And then they spent, I don't know how much money. On Hugh Jackman and on, yeah. yeah. Wolverine and, uh, and, and Little Mix. And, uh, and I, I'm a little bit old. I didn't kind of like know. I, I had to do some Googling to find out who these people were. Yeah. But then it was fun. We Googled up the lyrics and then we, uh, we all sang along. So it was, <laughs> it was worth it. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about Elimu. Have you been involved in the Next Billion Prize? Are you here just to kind of uh, involve in the EdTech community here? or? So, yeah, so we got through to the finals of the, of the Next Billion Prize. And that for us is, is important because what we do is we try to teach reading and writing to the first couple of years of primary school kids. And so the, the more people that know about us, the, the better for us. Yeah. And can you, so Elimu, is that uh, an app? Is it a kind of web app? What's the kind of uh, setup? Okay. So Elimu is, uh, Elimu means uh, education in Kiswahili. So Elimu is like e-learning, Elimu. So we were started about five or six years ago. But what we have now is an Android app and also an app for schools that teaches reading and writing to six and seven-year-olds. And the way we do that is we have hundreds of stories that are all written by teachers and then they're voiced by actors and then they're illustrated by artists all over the region. And so the child goes in and then hears uh, stories and the words are highlighted in time with the audio. And then after that, they do a set of exercises. They do some comprehension. They do some spelling. They do some letter tracing. And that forms up a pedagogy that is you know, scientifically shown to improve progress in reading and writing. And how long has it been going for? So we've been doing that the last two years. And we've done that in five languages so far. And really what our goals in the next few years are to make literacy apps in mother tongue languages all across Africa. So we're currently piloting in South Africa mm-hmm. and piloting in Nigeria as well. From your conversations here, are you sort of in the stage where you're looking for more investment or help with distribution or what's the kind of useful conversations that you're having? Right. Well, yeah, all of the above, really. When we go and do demos with parents and we go to schools, we see like fantastic take up. But the thing is, is we're not big enough to have like a marketing budget. So everything that catches on with us is just like word of mouth. And so we're, you know, we're looking for partners to kind of help us do that distribution more and more. And really to make new apps as well, to reach out to other countries, we also need some investment. So when we started doing this like about uh, two years ago, we looked at the best kind of literacy apps in English. And we said, okay, how much would it cost to make those in, in an African language? And we talked to a few people and they were telling us about a million dollars to make basically a library of stories with a set of exercises shown to improve progress scientifically. 
And so we were like, well, let's try and do it ourselves. And we did it for a fraction of that cost. But what that means now is we can make literacy apps in any language for about $50,000. So the price has come down, mm-hmm. you know, 95% in the last few years by leapfrogging technology and by, by using local developers here in Africa. Um, but, but we still need $50,000 if we are to go to Nigeria or South Africa and make those different versions. Got you, got yeah. you. And what was your kind of background before you came into doing this? So my background, I'm, I'm really a kind of a jack of all trades rather than a master of any. I lived in the UK, I grew up there, went to school there, went to university there. And, and I've worked as a journalist, I've worked in uh, design, I trained as a teacher, worked as a teacher, and I've been a techie as well. So I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a teacher, I wouldn't call myself a techie, I wouldn't call myself a designer, but I can at least like talk to all those people. You're, you're like a living of embodiment of everyone's projection of what the future of work's going to be like when they talk about that. Yeah, and I, I feel like I'm also like, I'm not a good example of that as well, because actually what happened in that situation, what happened to me, is I was someone, I found that I just ended up being quite good at lots of things, but not like a specialist at anything. So you end up kind of setting up your own company and doing your own things because like that's, you know, that's that's actually how you can find challenges and do interesting things. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, because if you just go into conventional employment and I do, and then I, I become a designer, which I'm not as good as other designers, or I become yeah. a techie, I'm not as good as other You're techies. You're a multi-potentialite, I think they call that. Is that what they call yes, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. No, but it's a, it's a fine set of skills because it means that you can work across, you know, a multitude of things and actually yeah. being able to pick up things and run with them quickly is fantastic so yeah yeah, yeah. most but most people are on the lookout for that aren't they well i hope so i hope so yeah yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we've got enough coders out there so <laughs> yeah, yeah that'll be fine with ilumu is mm. is that direct to parents is it direct to the schools are you working yeah. with the governments how's that work so when we started doing this project the kenyan government had made a commitment to buy tablets for every child in the first year of primary school so they bought 1.2 million tablets they distributed them to 20,000 schools and this is perhaps another conversation which might be interesting to have. But unfortunately, that's been a white elephant of the mm. project. It hasn't transformed education. And the reason why is because there was not enough kind of teacher training mm-hmm. to go along with it, which unfortunately is a story that I'm it's sure a recurring you know, is, theme, is, yeah. is repeated all over the world. And so often we don't see until the second phase of an edtech intervention like any kind of improvement in results. Because, you know, the first phase, everyone's got super high expectations and is trying to do it at the lowest cost and not realising that, that there are some fundamental parts of the picture that need to be filled in in order mm-hmm. to make it work. So, and it's frustrating for us because we actually ran the first tablet pilot, one tablet per child project in Kenya. And we ourselves made the, those very same mistakes. We went in and did minimal teacher training. We saw not very good results. And so when the government then did the same thing, like a few years later in 20,000 schools, you know, we were trying to kind of say, yeah. look, you need to do this, you need to do this, Wait. you need to do this. But yeah. we're just like one small voice in a forest. And so it's actually really disheartening that we're seeing those same mistakes rolled out into 20,000 schools now. But if you work in edtech and you, you know, you understand the potential of it, you understand that like we've moved on a lot from Nicholas Negroponte, we've, you know, it's all about pedagogy and yeah. I feel like we're in the third wave of like edtech. So the, the, the first wave was like kind of digital education. And then after that, you know, after the kind of like, let's give everyone Wikipedia and Khan Academy, it's like, let's make it local and let's make it kind of relevant to children and let's make the curriculum aligned. And now we're talking about the, you know, if the third wave then is like looking at data and looking at pedagogy and making sure that we actually improve results. So I think those are huge opportunities for us. And so we're still working with the government actively to try and 
make sure that this project you know does succeed not in the next year but in the next two three four years and your kind of business model who pays for the for that platform so yeah so we we're trying to work with government schools but we also go to private schools we're in 200 schools and uh, that pay for it either through themselves or, or through other kind of projects um, and then we've this year we've released um, apps in Kiswahili and in English for the Kenyan market so that the parents can read on their phones with their children and and then on top of that we did a, a Somali version which targeted children in what well, actually targeted youth yeah. that missed out on school in refugee camps in Dadaab so that's in northern Kenya and so so that's that's a kind of a B2B model or a B2NGO model mm-hmm. where there's now a push for literacy in humanitarian settings and so we can through kind of refugee settlements get our app out to reach thousands of kids there and when we do that we see great results so we've seen four times improvement 400 percent improvement in reading in our community centers versus in, in other community centers and that's for adults people say it's a lot harder to teach adults mm-hmm. literacy but you know so far it seems to be doing well do you speak uh, swahili i speak very bad swahili can you teach me anything barigani habari gani habari what yeah, does yeah. that mean hello that, it's kind of like, yeah, how are you? How's yeah, it going? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Every day's a learning day. And so, if people want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing or yeah. connect with you, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Well, um, they can check out our website, which is e-limu.org. And my email address is sam at e-limu.org. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Sam. Okay. Thank you. I'm John Ingram. I'm the CEO at Pomoja Education. So as CEO, uh, I'm responsible for building and growing Pomoja as an online course provider across a number of curricula around the world. So your announcement at GSF was quite prominent. So can you explain exactly what it was that you were announcing and kind of what that means both in terms of, you know, your existing and new learners, I suppose? Yeah, so um, for us, it's a very important announcement because uh, it signals moving away from being provider of courses in a single curriculum to offering multiple curricula. So in this case, we announced that we are introducing online international GCSE and A-level courses. And the reason that's significant is because there are literally thousands of students around the globe who study for these qualifications on an annual basis. And prior to this, we've been aligned uh, solely with the International Baccalaureate, which in itself uh, you know, has uh, thousands of students as well. But we think that moving across multiple different qualifications you know, opens up a much broader scope for us, partly as a, uh, a means to you know, increase our sales, but also from uh, an access point of view to accessing these qualifications to, a, to an even wider audience. What were some of your main takeaways in terms of memorable sessions or meetings that you had and then in with regards to Pomoja what what would you like to do next what's kind of once you've the kind of dust has settled on this particular announcement what's next for you okay so I found GSF fascinating as it as it always is and uh, a huge celebration of uh, of teachers uh, and the value that they they bring I mean amongst the the sessions that I particularly enjoyed I uh, spent quite a lot of time actually um with a number of startups listening to their pitches and following them through the uh, the competition uh, to get to uh, the uh, the billion dollar edtech our next billion dollar edtech 
uh, piece. And, you know, I was fascinated by the range of different approaches and technologies, you know, much of which actually wasn't high tech, which I was uh, interested to see um, because it's reaching a much wider audience. And I think that's a that's an important thing to to get across to, you know, decision makers in the process It's not always the most technologically advanced thing that's going to uh, to help the widest audience. Sometimes it's it's fairly simple technology, you know, on a low budget that can uh, can help a, a much wider audience. Perhaps in some areas of the world that are, that are, are you know struggling a bit more and uh, and therefore need need some of this help. So it was heartening to see those things, you know, and equally it was heartening to see some of the uh, the different ways in which people are using tech to uh, to help education. Fantastic. And and then for the your next six months, what will keep you busy? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So, you know, first of all, we've got to we've got to get these courses live. You know, with students operating on them, it's always a, a difficult time to get uh, get everybody on board. And uh, you know, we monitor students incredibly closely during the first few weeks of the courses as well to make sure that they're uh, getting on the way that we would like them to, and they've um, uh, you know they can progress from there. And then I guess the the other main piece of the the jigsaw is to build up some. Uh, momentum in some of the the markets that we're particularly interested in in growing our business in. So those are in China, in Malaysia, in Pakistan, and in India for the Cambridge curricula, but also the US for the uh, IB curricula. Um, and I'm going to be spending a lot of time, I suspect, in uh, in some of those countries, uh, both uh, working with schools to try and diagnose whether our offering is the right thing for that market, but also with distributors and uh, and other agents who may be able to help us to uh, to find access into those markets as well so it's going to be a busy time <laughs> busy time well fantastic well thank you very much for your time today and uh, look forward to sharing this um, and good luck with everything thanks Sophie hello this is Dan Goldsmith how are you hi Dan how are you I'm good I'm good excellent uh, how was your flight uh, it's been a whirlwind of a week. I arrived on Monday morning off the red eye, jumped straight into work, and I've been in uh, the UK, uh, Barcelona, wow. Switzerland yesterday, and then back in the UK today. So it's um, it's not a, an issue of jet lag anymore. It's an issue of not knowing sort of what hour or time of the day it is in general. Where I am or who I am. That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Well, thank you very much for taking part in this interview. You've taken over the role as CEO instructor in the last sort of six months. So how's that going and what, what's kind of been the, the main piece of work that you've been doing over the last six months? So great question. Uh, so first off, I'm having, I'm having a lot of fun. The, uh, I couldn't be more excited than to be with a company like Instructure that has such a strong culture and passionate employee base. And I describe Instructure a lot of times as a very mission-oriented company, mission-minded company. It's fascinating to me how throughout our employee base, everyone is is very attached to our mission where we want to help people grow from their first day of school to last day of work. The consumer of education and the model for education has changed fundamentally. So the diversity of the educations that we work with and the people and how they look at education and further development has really exploded over the past couple of years and will continue to evolve, I think, over the next uh, 10 to 28 years as well. That's transformation both in sort of the traditional educational environments, moving into online and digital, uh, which has been, been a big shift that we've been part of. And then, as you mentioned, the idea of lifelong learning, we're seeing a greater level of attachment for the professional worker going back to school or connecting back to educational experiences 
than we ever have before. And what's interesting now is that individual students or professionals are not alone in that journey. In fact, we see corporations and academic institutions creating some very meaningful connections between their organizations, making that learning experience much more frictionless than it's ever been in the past. Are there any of those partnerships perhaps with large-scale employers that you would be able to reveal or are are you kind of working on some of those at the moment? Because I'm imagining from an employer perspective, it's just as important to have a platform like Instructure to connect, you know, employees, the learning and development opportunities and perhaps some external partners, whether those are some of your university customers. It's just quite interesting to think about how those potential partners all fit together. Yeah. So let me talk about that. One of the nice things, the elements of that trend of how the professional individual is is going back and consuming uh, learning and education. What's nice about that is it's a trend and ecosystem shift that is happening independent of structure. We're well positioned in being able to support that change. And we're excited about being a supporting player in that change. But but that shift is happening. Some examples, ASU and Starbucks is, is probably one of the most pioneering examples. ASU is expanding their academic platform. And a number of years ago, they announced a partnership with Starbucks to offer education and degree programs to every single Starbucks employee. ASU uses Canvas. They use Canvas for traditional education. They use it for online education. And so when a Starbucks employee is looking to progress in their education and degree programs, they're using Canvas from Instructure. And there's many other examples of this as well. In fact, there was an announcement this week around Disney connecting with the University of Central Florida, where all the Disney employees will have access to, to education. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot more of these examples pop up and be interesting to see how they develop. I mean, I completely agree with your point about the ecosystem shifting from perhaps three, four, five years ago would have quite uncomplicatedly be called EdTech. And now I feel like, you know, whether that's right from the beginning of the chain in terms of investment, uh, Mm -hmm. the sector sort of turning towards lifelong learning a little bit. And I wonder how much of that is about that opportunity, but also about the kind of sustainable revenues and that kind of thing, because it it can be a difficult marketplace to work within as well. It it is. And so if, if I brought in the aperture for a second and think about what are the dimensions driving this change within the market right now, it's actually the perfect storm in a positive way of change for this ecosystem shift. Academic organizations are looking to broaden their offerings and their student population opportunities, and they need to grow revenue just like any other organization out there. Uh, so as they have more digital means and online programs, they can reach a much broader population. In fact, the professional work is the largest growing student population at this point in time, whereas your traditional undergraduates are not growing. Uh, additionally, corporations are understanding and appreciating the investment that they should be making in individuals and employees in their career growth and by turning to academic institutions to to drive growth and build career and build skills, they can achieve that goal much more easily. And then overall, when we look at the the broader marketplace, we're seeing a major change and revision of those academic programs to make sure that academic institutions can connect the outcomes to the workplace in a much more meaningful way. Globally right now, We have a marketplace of jobs that is massive and growing and changing rapidly, and we don't have enough workers with the right skills in the marketplace to address that job demand. 
And drilling down into the sort of specifics of what you will offer the sort of learning and development community or more on the corporate side, do you have some view on on the types of products that you will be able to support them with? Yes. That's been an evolution for us as well. In fact, even though we started with our primary focus being on education uh, and providing the LMS into education, about three years ago, we came to market with Bridge with a similar mindset of providing a learning management solution to the corporate space. What we've learned over that time and the benefit of, of being prevalent in this space overall for education for the last decade is the fact that learning, especially in the professional stage of people's lives, doesn't happen only in front of a classroom or in front of a terminal. Um, learning is a, is a much more faceted, layered experience that's inclusive of things like mentoring, coaching, meaningful relationships with managers, feedback. And so when you layer in those other elements, the amount of progression and engagement for an individual at an organization uh, is, is far better. So we, we look at the educational experience across that continuum, not only for delivering sort of content and curriculum, but we look at it as really creating an immersive experience that's helping someone grow, both in the traditional mechanisms as well as through experiential learning and the flow of work. Well, that's really interesting because we did an episode a couple of weeks back about online learning and and the kind of outcome of that seemed to be that the kind of a couple of years back, people were sort of really into pure adaptive learning, like you say, perhaps sitting in front of a terminal. And I feel that model is really starting to be qualified now and people are much more into the idea of, okay, this is also all about your networks, building up mentor based learning and perhaps things will be slower in the in the short term, but you know, longer term, the actual learning benefit is is far greater if you do go on that journey with people, with face to face as part of it. So, from instructors' point of view or bridge, will that mean that you take part in that kind of offline experience? Will your part very much be connecting the dots? So, no, we're very much as part of that offline experience. And so when you think about Bridge and our offerings for Bridge, even though we start with an LMS capability, we've now layered in additional products. So, for example, we have solutions and support for the relationships between managers and individuals, you know, performance management capabilities so that managers and employees and teams can stay in touch on a regular basis and provide more meaningful feedback and perspective. And we've already seen the impact that makes within the workplace. Um, We've also incorporated video-based learning and feedback. So we have a phenomenal capability where employees can actually practice skills, whether it's presentation skills or uh, different discussions, uh, different type of things. And that's being used in a wide variety of ways. For example, we have a customer that is a uh, home security company, and they use video-based learning in the field where their techs can record themselves installing alarm systems and then it automatically sh- shares out to experts across the, the globe, uh, other people in the company that can then give feedback on the video of what they're doing, and what they're performing on. So it's these phenomenal dynamics of learning that just haven't existed before. On top of that, uh, we've created a platform for mentoring and connections, uh, career growth and progression. And we're also layering in more employee sentiment and feedback as well into the bridge platform. Fantastic. If people are listening in and they've, they've yet to meet you on your, on your journey uh, across Europe, let's find out a little bit about you. So once you're off of these myriad of plane flights, what do you enjoy to, to kind of wind down and uh, how do you relax? So I have three daughters. They're 15, 12 and 9 and they, they keep me 
busy at all times. So there's not a lot of there's not a lot of downtime for me. Uh, but Sophie, you know, I've been very blessed and fortunate throughout my career to have tremendous uh, tremendous experience and successes. I started working internationally across the globe when I was about 21 years old as a developer, and uh, and just have been really fortunate with the opportunities that I've been afforded. And so a lot of my motivation at this point in time is is around give back. And so the opportunity to join and structure and impact people's lives, uh, you know, I consider myself very, very lucky uh, to be in this position. And so at work, I enjoy working with so many amazing individuals within our employee base and within our, our customer base, understanding and appreciating the impact that we can uh, that we can make. And that's a lot of my motivator. And then outside of work, uh, yeah, I focus a lot on, on family and seeing what impact I can make there and, and, uh, and navigating a teenagehood with three daughters and hoping I can survive. <laughs> I hope you survive as well. Um, just finally, we always ask our guests, if there are any books, resources, people that sort of have inspired you, whether that's recently or things that you return back to that you'd like to share with our listeners. So yeah, anything that you've kind of found useful to tap into? Let's see. From a book's perspective, I've always been a a big believer in The Innovator's Dilemma, which is sort of a classic book that talks about how businesses really need to understand how the things of the past were maybe not as innovative as they were at that time, and they need to continue to reinvent themselves. So that's a fantastic book for any business person for business leader. I'm also at this stage in my career. So we talk about our mission and structure as first day of school and last day of work. Uh, I have a slide that I use in a presentation now from time to time. That is this pictorial view. It's sort of my e-portfolio. We do, you know, we, we, uh, around my, my experience over the years and thinking about, you know, what has impacted me in my life and helped me along this journey. You know, when I was a teenager, I worked in retail electronics. I worked as a disc jockey and a professional mm-hmm. photographer, uh, before I, I went on to to uh, university and then continued on in management consulting and, and software. And, and so now I'm at a time where I reflect on the things that have had a profound impact on my success and, and experiences in my view of the world. And so, you know, that includes people, jobs, school and all these important ingredients that I think we can all relate to at some point or another. Uh, from a book perspective, uh, there's a woman by the name of Esther Wojcicki, who just released a book called How to Raise Successful People. Um, she's one of the most widely recognized influences on education, probably in the last century. She's going to be speaking at our InstructureCon this year in the U.S. and Long Beach in July as well. But that's a phenomenal book that just paints a lot of perspective on people and their success and families and how to raise successful people. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining the EdTech podcast and uh, look forward to sharing this with our listeners. Very good. Sophie, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I'm here with John Biglow from the Education Technology Solutions magazine. That is correct. How are you, Brilliant. Sophie? I'm very well, thank you, John. And yeah, we're both at the Global Education Skills World Forum. And John has just interviewed me for his own podcast. So it's a, a whole podcast uh, world out here. I think uh, Emma, one of the... Uh, <laughs> Global Teacher Prize top 50 from the UK, physics teacher who you'll hear on the podcast soon. She's also a podcaster, so we've been exchanging tips and tricks and all that good stuff. But John, for our listeners, perhaps you could share a little bit about uh, Education Technology Solutions magazine, some of your readership and yeah, what you kind of do on a day-to-day level. Sure. So Education Technology Solutions magazine was sort of 
born out of another magazine back in the early 2000s where it was largely a really just a product directory initially back in the very early days of education technology but we were at a couple of trade shows one of which being the Victorian IT Teachers Association conference in Melbourne which I don't even think that group is around anymore and we spoke to a lot of the teachers there and they had no real interest in what we were doing and we said okay that's interesting well what would make it interesting to you and they said we need professional development information back then and it's probably still the case largely till now what was happening is that 99% of the school's budget was reserved for capital expenditure. So they would go out and they would buy the education technology, but 1% or less was actually reserved for professional development training. And so a lot of the teachers were saying, we need a good source of professional development training. We need something that shows us how to use all this stuff because it was becoming very Monty Python-esque in that, you know, a particular teacher would rally the school board for a particular piece of gear, then they would move on and you would have this machine that goes bing sitting in the corner and no one knew what it actually did. Yeah, yeah. What then happened is we sort of started moving towards creating a platform for PD type information or professional development information written by teachers for teachers that would show them how to use technology in the classroom And that was back around sort of 2003, 2004. And back then a lot of people were saying, a whole magazine just on ed tech, really? Is that a thing? Does anyone care? It's like, yeah, just watch this space. It it will be. Um, And over the last 20 years or so, it's grown now to the point where we don't actually do the print magazine anymore. We do it as a digital magazine, uh, largely driven by the readers saying, come on, guys, you're an education technology resource. Why the hell are you still printing it? Yeah. But now it gets used by teachers all over Australia and parts of the world looking at what other teachers and education leaders are doing in the classroom to actually integrate technology into their workspace. Does your content cover the adult and vocational space as well or is it all no, in K-12? We're, we're largely K-12. So we do do the odd parts here and there for higher education. But primarily, it's all K-12. to And even when we say K-12, to it's mainly primary to year 12. We don't do a lot of the kindergarten stuff either. Well, so we just had a conversation and I shared some of the things that I'm hearing on the, on the podcast. How about yourself? Are there any kind of main things that are coming out about education and ed tech across Australia? Yeah, look, I think the main themes that we're still seeing in Australia, and I'm sure it's the same globally, is really just the day-to-day struggle with how to integrate the technology into the classroom in a meaningful way. This industry just changes so quickly that the flavour of the month can be different from, you know, the first quarter of the year to the last quarter of the year. You know, interactive whiteboards are a perfect example. You know, a few years ago, everyone had these interactive projectors that everyone thought, well, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. That then morphed into interactive displays and then that's now interactive panels and it just keeps changing and changing and changing. And I think... A lot of schools are really having to sort of stop now and think from a budget point of view, how do I future-proof what we're doing in our school? And then once we figure out how to future-proof it, how do we actually use it in a meaningful way that both improves student engagement, increases learning outcomes and doesn't create fatigue from a teaching point of view of, oh, great, now this is just another thing that I have Mm -hmm. to learn how to use. Well, on that front of like continual change and disrupting teachers' practice in the classroom, have there been any kind of interesting policy pieces either from kind of the Australian government or if you go down to sort of Melbourne where you're based as well? Yeah, look, policy is is interesting in Australia in that they've tried to bring in the digital skills curriculum within the last couple of years, but it's still pretty fragmented and different states are doing different things. So in Australia, we've got seven different states and territories and 
even though we have supposedly a national curriculum, it's still largely up to the schools how they choose to deliver it and in what manner they deliver it. So I think you still get huge disparity between one school and the next. And in fact, you get huge disparity between one classroom and the next. I've, I've walked into certain schools in years gone by where they've just introduced new interactive panels. And in one classroom, you'll have a young-ish teacher in their late 20s, early 30s that's providing the class with the most amazing interactive lesson. For example, one I saw was around Shakespeare's Hamlet. And they're talking about the actual play and then the teacher would bring up on the screen a word version of the script and they'd go through it and then he'd show various different examples from YouTube. It might be Mel Gibson's version of Hamlet versus a more traditional Shakespearean company version of Hamlet, which would then lead into a discussion around set design and costumes and they'd explore all of that on the web. Then you go into the very next classroom and you've got a more senior teacher who's literally using the interactive panel as an overhead projector. Yeah, yeah. So the disparity between how the technology is being used to deliver the content isn't just limited from school to school or state to state. It's classroom to classroom. It's still a little bit of the Wild West at the moment. And are you seeing, obviously, you're a bit closer to China than us in the UK, and China's having a you know massive investment in terms of, of ed tech. How about EdTech in Australia? Are you seeing more of a mix of international companies come onto the stage, either from the UK, China or other countries? Yeah, look, it's interesting. A lot of the, most of the technology that we see in Australia, apart from potentially some of the software, you mentioned some of the learning management systems in the podcast that we did previously, and you know, one of them might be, say, Schoolbox out of Australia, which is a locally based software developer. That can be more local, but when you're talking about the physical hardware itself, it's all the multinationals, all the typical players that you would expect to see, like your, you know, your BenQs and your Epsons and your Kyoceras and these sorts of people, just because as a nation, we don't manufacture anything. Everything comes out of China or Taiwan or whatever it may be, and so all of those big players, the same sorts of people you would expect to see at BET every year, are all the people that you will get in Australia. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, if people want to find out more about your magazine and your podcast as well, is, is your podcast on iTunes? Where's the best way? So it will be on iTunes at the end of where at the Global Education and Skills Forum at the moment. And when we get back, we, it's funny, we started doing podcasts, I mentioned this to you earlier, about 10 years ago, and then we stopped doing them because everyone just went, podcasts, what's that? Now, again, it's become so popular that we're, we're launching it again. So if they go to www.educationtechnologysolutionsmagazine.com, they'll find the magazine there. It's available online as a digital magazine, and that's where we'll be launching the podcast as well, as well as through Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and all the usual suspects. And have you got a title for the podcast yet? It'll be the Education Technology Solutions Podcast. Okay. Yep. It's a really long title. We're trying to figure out a way to cut okay. it down. All right, awesome. Well, thank you very much, John. Thank you.